and now also as a teacher, he gets to teach many of those classes that he was referencing as well, and gets a chance to preach, and it's just been a, it's been a joy to do, do class with Josh. Uh, he's a fun, fun kid. Not a kid, a man. <laughs> Let me pray here for today and uh, for our time here in the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your righteousness and your love for us. Lord, we do thank you that you are a king of love who is our shepherd and who guides us, uh, who provides for us and takes care of us, or that we have nothing to fear with you. Uh, Father, we just ask that you continue to speak to us, that you continue to grow us, that you continue to mature us uh, into the likeness of you. Lord, just be with us. Lord, we just ask this morning that you give us wisdom and insight into your word. Lord, help us to see you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, help us to grow in our confidence in you and in our right standing before you. Lord, we are so thankful for Christ, so thankful for the work that you've done and how you have saved us. Lord, help us to really grab hold of that love, to let your love and your mercy really settle into the recesses of our heart. Lord, we just pray that you open up our heart and our eyes this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. We're in the midst here of our series out of the book of Daniel, uh, and it's been, a, it's been a really fun series to go through. You know, it's, it's a book that's really familiar to us in a lot of ways. It's kind of the popular Sunday school stories and, and things that, you know, we've, we've heard before, but boy, what a timeless, timelessly appropriate book, and it, it feels like it, it really speaks to us today and to this moment that we're in in so many ways as a church and as a people. If you have a Bible with you today, open it up to Daniel chapter 6. We're here at the very kind of close of the story of Daniel when it comes to his life and his narrative, so we'll be walking through that. If you don't have a Bible, we'll go through it on the screen as well. But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 today. So starting here in Daniel 6 verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom." Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The story picks up now, right? If, if We've gone through a succession of kings, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar and now to Darius. The Medes are in a position of power, and Darius has come to the throne. And you have Daniel, right, continuing to be Daniel. He's well into his 70s at this point, and he is still serving the king. New king, same Daniel, doing the same things, and really good at his job. He gets the reward that each king has kind of given him at this point, you know, setting him over everything, and now all of these satraps have to answer to him. He's the one who's making sure that no error is found. 
really, this that everything is going to be faithfully done, it's his job to kind of quell down the corruption in the land. But you can understand then why these other officials kind of have it out for him. Because while Daniel has been in Babylon now for his, I mean, almost entire life, right, he is, he's more Babylonian than the Babylonians at this point. And he is incredibly good at his job, but he has not wavered in his faithfulness to God, in his character, in his work. He is faithful. And the text here in this early part wants to show you that he is not corrupt, which causes problem, right? It causes problems for the corrupt. It causes problems for all the other people who are looking to make a profit off of their positions of power and authority that the king has given them. And Daniel's goodness makes it difficult for them. Right? I, th- I think we all have experienced that in some level, right? As a student or in work, right, or somewhere, right? The kid who reminds the teacher to assign homework or oh, come on, right? Can you not be so good? And so the only way they can stop him, right, is to put him under the microscope, and they look for anything they can to catch him in. Powerful men are looking to take him down. Then in verse 6, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So here's their conspiracy, right? Here's the plan, the way in which they're going to catch Daniel. They, they're not going to, they find no fault in him. They find no way to trap him other than according to his law of, of God. So they create a temporary ban, a 30-day ban on prayer in the kingdom to any God, any religion, right? You can't pray to that God unless you are offering your prayer first to the king, and it's much more of a political move than a religious move. It's, it, it's supposed to remind you of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? I mean, these stories are so interrelated, right? This reminds us of Belshazzar. It reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a very, very similar stories to the statue and to the fiery furnace. And it's really the same kind of concept here, that Darius is going to be seen as that sole mediator between the people and their gods. Like, you can have your religions. You can believe in your gods. Right? Darius isn't taking away the rights of worship or the right to believe in anything. We're just going to take a 30-day ban on prayer. Right? If you want to offer a prayer, offer it to me first as to the king. Again, just putting things in the proper place from the king's perspective. Right? It's me that stands between you and your gods. Just don't forget right, the priorities of the kingdom. It's to provide this unifying 30 days where everyone will come under the king's authority and offer up to him what is due. And so as we go through it, right, you, the question then becomes, you know, how will Daniel respond? What will he do in the face of this news? As a high-ranking official in the kingdom, and when he finds out there's a 30-day ban on prayer, will he go directly to the king and plead his case? That's happened in Scripture. Right? Will he 
go to get, gather his friends again? Will they pray? You know, what, what will the response be? And in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So you have again, he's caught. The conspiracy works. Daniel hears the news, right? And it starts with that phrase. You know, he knew, once Daniel knew the document had been signed, he goes and he prays. And the text is clear that he's not praying because of the crisis. Like the crisis isn't making him go to his knees, right? He's not praying because there's a ban, He's not praying because the king has done something unjust or horrible. Right? He's not, that isn't driving him to his knees. Rather, right, really the, the text is really trying to show you that rather than the crisis, it's that the crisis didn't change his habits. The crisis didn't change the rhythms of his life. The king's decree didn't change anything. That's what the text is telling us. Not that in the face of this unjust king with an unjust law or this conspiracy or anything like that, it doesn't make Daniel react and say, all right, I'm doubling down. I'm going to pray three times a day for these 30 days. No, this is what he has always been doing. And the king's decree does not change his life. It doesn't change what he does. This is just what he does. He prays. He prays to Jerusalem three times a day. He didn't cry out either in his prayer Right, but he rather, right, the text says, he's not asking for anything, right? He's not crying out, but he's giving thanks, which is what he's always been doing, right, for the last 60-some years in Babylon. And Daniel is found, which isn't hard, right? It's not hard to find him. The text tells that there's windows open where he's praying. They all have an agreement, these men who made the law. They go and they find him. They find him and they see him. And again, that reminder for us, again, just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they wouldn't bow before the statue and go into the furnace, right? God doesn't protect them from being found, right? They, they get caught. It's very clearly they get caught. God didn't promise the exiles comfort. He didn't promise them, right, that they wouldn't ever be delivered into the hands of their enemies, right? He doesn't promise any of those things. He didn't promise to save them from their trials. He doesn't promise Daniel that he would never go through anything terrible. He never promises us, right, that we will not be handed over to the hands of very unjust people who look to take us down, right? I mean, that's never in Scripture. 
Rather, right, you find that God is incredibly faithful, though, and promises to save us through our trials, that He's committed to His glory, that He's committed to be with us in our trial. And then the conspirators get the king to reaffirm the law. And they throw Daniel in. And notice how they refer to him. Right? When they talk about him in the text, they again, it's that Daniel. That Daniel. They won't use his Babylonian name, right? They use his Jewish name. That Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. They identify him as a Jew, not as one of them, not as their boss, which he is. Right? He's their authority. He's one of the, thir- the third most high-ranking officials. He's over all of them, and they refer to him right as that Jew, Daniel. That one of those exiles, one of those nothings, him. And the, and the text, right, they clearly intend this to be an insult, to be a slight on Daniel. But in many ways, right, it's, a, it's the highest praise you could give to Daniel. That through the midst of this all, he has maintained who he is. I mean, he is more a native than these Persians, right? Because these are Persians now who are ruling. They're not Babylonians. This is a conquering nation that's just come into the play. He's been there longer. He's been ruling longer than they have, and they call him a Jew still. Which really, again, goes to tell us about who Daniel really is and, who, and Daniel's identity in the midst of this. He maintained his Jewishness, even as he's more of a Babylonian than the Babylonians. He's still a Jew, and they call him Daniel. He's this pilgrim, this sojourner in a land. And then... The king, right, affirms the law, and now you wonder, right, what will he do? Verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, right? He wants to deliver him, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. When these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, no, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. We're going to see this is just a straight lie. He absolutely can do it, and he's going to do it in a minute. This happens in Esther too. They're like, oh, you can't change the law. And then they do it. it. They can easily do it. You just have to write a new one. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. It's a pretty tremendous picture here of Daniel being delivered over. With the king, right, distressed, laboring all day, right, how can I deliver him? The king does not want Daniel to be thrown into the den, right? He clearly loves Daniel, cares for Daniel deeply, but the law stands. And we know, right, it it seems like there's nothing he can do, but he can. He can write a counter edict, and that's going to happen very soon. And this happens in Esther as well, like I was mentioning, but he won't do it. And it, it's really about more of saving face than anything else. This is the new high king emperor of the, of the entire free world at this moment, right? And will he take back his law? Will he take back his ban on prayer? Will he, 
right? Well, no, I can't. This would be weakness, you know, in the face of all of these people, thousands of them. You know, I can't, I won't, right? He won't do it. But he still has hope, and he fasts, and he prays for Daniel, right? And says, you know, like, may the God who you continually serve rescue you, right? And he spends the night fasting and hoping and waiting, hoping that Daniel will be saved. But he's abandoned and sealed off from any kind of help. The stone is put in place, sealed by the king and all the lords. It cannot be moved. No one is to interfere. He's going to spend this night with the lions, and no one will be able to intervene on his behalf. Verse 19. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. (laughs) It's a very violent ending to the story. The king rushes in in the morning, fitful sleep, couldn't sleep, fasting all night, rushes and in anguish cries out to Daniel. And Daniel, right, and they want you to kind of compare these two figures, the king in distress, the king in anguish, the king uncertain of what was going on. And Daniel replies calmly, comfortably, (laughs) that Daniel's night, it's clear, right, was far more comfortable than the king's night. That what was meant as torture to Daniel turned out to be tremendous comfort and a wonderful night with the presence of God and an angel with him. And the king turns on the conspirators, right, which is in keeping with all the ancient customs of the land, all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi some thousand years before this time. The Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians always had this as their code of law, that if you accuse somebody, if you entrap somebody, and death is on the line, that they could be found guilty of death. If that's true, if this is it, and they found innocent, you die. You, and that was always the law, and that was always kind of put through. The burden of evidence was always on the person accusing. And if you can't prove your case, if you bring charges and it's going to lead to death for them, you can't prove it. Or if they are found innocent in some way, and there are lots of ways for this to happen. They could jump into the Tigris and Euphrates River, and if they lived through it and found innocent, the gods found them innocent, then you found, all right, then you die. I mean, there's lots of ways that this happened, and that's clearly what they see this as, that that night in the den for Daniel was his trial. 
right? And he got through the trial. And that's exactly what Daniel said. My king found me innocent. I have done nothing wrong in the eyes of my king, and I've done nothing wrong in the eyes of you, Darius. He's been found doubly innocent through that night, through this trial. The lions did not devour him, meaning he was innocent. His accusers were not. That's why they want to show you that that exactly what they were hoping to happen to Daniel happens to them before they even hit the floor, right? They're crushed. And in so many ways here, in this moment, at this ending of Daniel's life, we see the true nature of Daniel's name. Because that's shifted a few times. We've had Daniel, we've had Belshazzar, his Babylonian name, but then it's back to Daniel again, and you're supposed to see him as Daniel. And Daniel, right, my God is my judge. Who judges Daniel? It's not Darius. It's not his accusers. But it's God who judges him and finds him innocent. And he's given life. And Darius even recognizes it. Right? Darius gets that idea that it took Nebuchadnezzar so long to get. Right? Nebuchadnezzar sees it eventually. Darius sees it here very, very quickly. And then Darius' response here in verse 25 and to the end, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, wow, right? everybody, all people across the entire earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth he who has saved daniel from the power of the lions so this daniel i want that little this so this daniel prospered during the reign of darius and the reign of cyrus the Persian. From the den, Daniel calls out to Darius, right, O king, live forever. And here at the end, Darius is acknowledging, (laughs) my kingdom is not the one that lives forever and goes on forever. This God is the king who will live forever. His reign will have no end. He is the true high king. His is the kingdom that will be until the end. He no longer cares about saving face. He no longer cares about enduring. And he issues the counter edict, right, that you're hoping for. And he takes away the ban, right? Now everyone is to pray, is to worship this God. You know, it's, it's, it's over. The 30 days is done. It's done. You are to fear and tremble this God. Don't fear and tremble me, Darius is saying, right? Don't don't bow to me any longer. Bow to, that, to your God. Bow to this God of Daniel. He learns that lesson of Nebuchadnezzar very, very quickly. And then finally, the author points out in that last verse, right, that that Daniel, this Daniel, prospered. He prospers through the rest of Darius' life and even into Cyrus's life, which would be Darius' son. He continues. Right? You're like, how long is this guy going to work? You know, at what point will he retire from the work that he has here? He spends his entire life laboring in a foreign land for foreign kings, 
for foreign governments that bow to different gods that have destroyed his homeland, right? If you really think about Daniel's life, I mean, he is taken away as a youth, as a teenager. He's kidnapped and taken from his family, from his home. He's in Babylon serving a king who is powerful but vicious and is taking everybody and, and exiling them. <clears throat> He's serving that king. He works for that king while that king even destroys the temple of his God and brings those items back to their home city. And then he serves king after king, and none of those kings, right, is the true king, and he knows that, and he lives a life in exile. He never goes back. He never makes it to Jerusalem, although he lives to see the king who will deliver the Jews back home. That will be Cyrus. will let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Daniel will live this entire life of exile, serving the king, serving the people, trusting in God. You're really supposed to see him as this ideal sojourner, this ideal exile, this ideal pilgrim. Like, what does it look like to live in a place that's not your home? I mean, Daniel does it, right? He's calm, he's collected, he is loving, he speaks the truth, he prays, he worships, right? Like, he gets it. Daniel has it. God protects him and keeps him his entire life, right? This is not the first time he has stood up to a king and it's not the last time either, right? And God continues to take care of him, continues to provide for him. It's a powerful story, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's a powerful story that, that really it's hard not to identify with Daniel, right? The narrator wants us to. He wants us to, to see Daniel, and they show you Daniel again and again and how good he is. And clearly, Daniel was able to stand up to the test. He was tested by his co-workers and found innocent. He was tested by his king and found innocent. He was tested by God and found innocent. Daniel is pretty great. And we see it. And I look at Daniel's life. This is the life. The life he lives is the life I long to live, right? I mean, look at the way that he handles this life. You know, we talk about, I feel like we live in interesting times politically and socially with so much unrest and all these things. And I have such a hard time, right, not being tossed to and fro and overreactive to whatever is on Twitter or whatever is on the news or whatever is going on in the social life or whatever I see. It's hard for me, right? I, I'm struggling with that on a daily level. Daniel doesn't struggle. He is calm, he is hopeful, he is at peace. He's able to work diligently and hard. Like, I can work well when I support the mission statement, when my boss, right, is good. (laughs) He works hard and loves terrible bosses, people who, I mean, are literally threatening his life and will kill him for arbitrary reasons. And he loves them and he prays for them and he holds them up in high regard, right? I mean, like, I don't do any of those things. He remains steadfast and true. He works to help life flourish for everyone. He seeks the welfare of the city. He seeks the welfare of his people, but not only his people, but of the Babylonians too, and of the Medes, those who are not his people, right? He's, he's genuinely able to love everybody, not just his tribe, but the whole world, and work for the whole world's benefit. He helped them 
to flourish. He trusted God and he found favor, right, in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of God, despite, right, and this is what's so hard, right, is despite being scorned and rejected by the people who are close to him every day, the people who actually, right, he's interacting with, his coworkers, his neighbors, they scorn and reject him, but he finds favor with this foreign godless kings, and he seems to be concerned about that and not as concerned about what his coworkers think of him. He was judged and found innocent. And not just against those charges that were brought up against him. Because he was actually guilty of that. Right? Like there's a little bit of the story that's a little untrue, right? He's found innocent, but he's not innocent. We just read the story. He prayed. He prayed three times. He didn't offer a prayer to Darius. So how can he say, how can the king say, right, that he's innocent? Because he was actually found innocent in the eyes of God, the true judge, the true king, finds him innocent. Daniel's life was hanging in the balance, right, all night in the pit. And he went before God, and God himself came to Daniel and was with him through the night and found him deserving of life. That's... (laughs) That's pretty good. I mean, I would long for that. But if I'm honest with myself, right, I am nowhere close to those things. The prospect of spending a, light, a night alone with God, I, I no. Right? I mean, that's, that's the response that's in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? It's fear, right? Like, oh no, I will die. I can't be with the Lord. I am sinful and I, have, I, I can't, right? The more and more I look at Daniel and the more and more I want to be Daniel and I want the life that he lives, the more and more I'm confronted, right, with how unlike Daniel I really genuinely am. As much as I want to delude myself and say I, I can be a Daniel in this culture or I'm like Daniel, I'm just, I'm not. Especially this story, right? I am desperate for the approval of my friends and my coworkers and my neighbors, like those are the people I want to approve of me the most and I'm actually quick to not care what authorities think of me and I think that's a real American ideal probably it's probably maybe just a western thing where just right authority ah who cares right stick it to the man I don't really care what they think as long as my coworkers right look at me as long as my neighbors really have a high view of me as long as my friends really approve of me Right, I can, I can make it. I don't need my boss to approve of me. I don't need those authorities to approve of me. I, I don't need their approval. I just need the people closest to me's approval. Right, I see it in school all the time. You know, students will turn in work, right, no fear if they know I'm the one who's grading it. But all of a sudden, if I show it like, to their peers, whoa, right, like panic sets in and the amount of level of work that they put into things, if their peers are looking at something, you're like, whoa, 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 what is this? But that's, that's in my heart too. Right, like why, why don't we care what authorities think of us? Why are we so eager to throw off their authority and not be submissive and so desperate for the praise and approval of the people who are close to us, of our peers? If I was to be watched, like Daniel was watched, right? Like if my coworkers, if my neighbors were looking at my life, looking for a way to trap me, it would not take long. <laughs> it would not take long to trap me. It would not 
be hard to find fault with me. Right? It would not be hard if you wanted to give a bad report to my boss, if you wanted to show to the world that I was a fraud. It, right? It's not hard. And if we're all honest with that, right? I mean, there are, we are undermined continually. There are lots of things, right? If, if our authorities, if the people around us who love us, if they knew everything, right, I would lose all credibility, right? No, I have nothing. No, I don't deserve the job that I have. I don't deserve the praise that I'm getting. I'm not that good. I'd be easy to trap. And if I was to spend that night with God in the pit, with my life in the balance, I would not be found innocent. Right? I would not be found holy and blameless and righteous. My life would not be given to me at the end of that night. Because, right, we, and, and we know this deep down because we all have this intense fear of judgment, right? And, and the, the similarity to chapter 5 is on purpose, right? We just saw Belshazzar weighed and found wanting, right? His life was in the balance and God said no. And now you see Daniel's life held in the balance and God says yes. But which one am I? <laughs> I'm clearly Belshazzar, right? I'm not Daniel. And the, the author wants us to see this, right? That Belshazzar is in fact Israel, not Daniel. Daniel, Israel is not Daniel. We are not faithful to him. We have not served him with our whole heart. We have not continually worshiped him with everything. Of course not, right? We have been quick to boast and quick to take pride in all of these things because you know, every day of our life, right, it really feels like we're in a courtroom, right? It always feels like, right, there's a verdict hanging over me that I'm, right, which way, what, at the end of the day, which will I be found? Will I be found as a person who is good, who is valuable, who is right, or will I be found as someone who is not? And we feel that pressure and that need for that verdict, you know, all the time. Um, you know, <laughs> Madonna, to use an example of, of someone, you know, not holding her up as a moral example for us, but in an interview in Vogue magazine, she talked about this too, of, of this idea of like, you know, that the moment she makes an album, the moment she has this great performance, she says like, it feels great, but it's fleeting, right? I know that I have to just keep going. I have to make another one. I have to do something else because I'll, she said, I'm afraid that one day, right, people will just think of me as mediocre, that I'm not great. I'm like, well, she's not narcissistic. She just, that's all of us. She's just articulating what all of us have. The moment I've accomplished something is the very moment I'm now in fear of losing everything and I need to keep going. I've got to keep my standing high. You know, the moment I feel like I've got the approval of my boss, the moment I have the approval of my neighbors, it's just, it's fleeting. I feel like right every day I'm in the courtroom and people are judging me. Right? We all feel the, the judgment in work, in our relationships, in the church. It's always this feeling of like, I'm under the microscope. Will I be found to be worth it at the end? And just being told you're worth it, just being told you're good, isn't enough, right? And that's what Christianity has done a lot of over the years. Like we tell people, no, 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 you're great. No, 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 God loves you. No, don't, 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 don't worry about what other people think about you. It, it rings hollow after a while, right? It's like being told by your mom as a kid, right? Like, no, you're really good. You're really great. Well, it works a little bit, but you know I'm not, I know I'm not that great. 
and it feels like empty praise. And it, I need an actual court case, right? I need an actual verdict to happen, I, right? We all, we are all afraid of the judgment, but we all know, right, that I don't just, I, a blanket statement of you're innocent is not going to be enough because it doesn't deal with myself. It doesn't deal with what I've actually done. Just being told I'm free and clear sounds nice, but I want to actually go through the trial, and I want to actually be found innocent. Right? Until that happens, I'm still going to be desperately seeking that verdict. People can tell it to you all the time, but until you actually go through the trial and find the verdict, right, you won't rest, and we'll constantly keep boasting and comparing and all of those things. The hope of the story of Daniel is not to become Daniel. My only hope would be, right, because I can't go through the den, I can't go through the trial, my only hope would be of someone going into the den for me, right, of someone stepping into the courtroom for me, of someone like Daniel who would actually, right, be judged in my place. Because the story of Daniel and the lion's den it points to the reader, it points the reader to this hope and to this wishing for another Daniel, for a better Daniel, and for Christians, right, who understand the gospel, who know the New Testament, right, it, we can't help but be reminded of the story of another exile, right, who was put through a very similar trial, right? I mean, we can't help but see Christ in the same story here. Like Daniel, Jesus was accused by his enemies. Like Daniel, Jesus was brought before a ruler, who sought unsuccessfully to deliver him from his fate, right, before handing him over to this death. I mean, it's just such a similar story. Jesus was condemned to die, and his body was placed in a sealed pit so that his situation could not be changed by human intervention. The same point. They sealed it so no one could intervene. No one could come to Jesus' body. No one could touch this Jesus' trial went even deeper. He didn't merely suffer the threat of death, right? He went down into death himself. And although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty one, unlike Daniel, who was guilty and found innocent. Jesus was innocent and found guilty. And there was no angel to comfort him. Rather, he was left in the blackness, utterly alone and abandoned by God. He did not have lions to keep him company, an angel to keep him company through the night. His was not a comfortable trial like Daniel's. Suffering the fate right, that we, the guilty ones, deserve. But like Daniel, Jesus didn't remain in the pit. He received the stamp of approval like Daniel, but instead of getting the stamp of approval for himself, right? he got the stamp of approval for all. Right? His accusers, instead of his accusers going into the pit and being killed, his accusers were set free. Right? Could you imagine that ending to the story of Daniel? Right? You kind of long for that ending to the story. Because when Daniel came out of the pit, he came out alone. When Jesus comes out of the pit after three days, right? The New Testament is very clear. He comes out as the head of a mighty company of people who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. He brings everybody out of the pit with him. 
And whoever believes in him, right, has received the same verdict that has been delivered from that pit. Jesus got the verdict, right? He got that verdict that Daniel got. But unlike Daniel, because I can look at Daniel and be like, oh, I wish I could be like Daniel. I wish I could get the verdict Daniel got. Jesus got the verdict, and he credits it to me, right, his accuser. So it's not an empty promise. Someone went through my trial for me. It's not just I've been forgiven. It's not just I'm clean. It's not just I will live. It's someone went through my den. Someone spent the, lion, the night with the lions. And not just was, came out, someone died, took my death. Not just found innocent, but found guilty even though he was innocent. This, right, is the hope of our salvation. My hope isn't to be a Daniel. My hope in life is not my ability to be more and more like Daniel. My hope right, is rather on Jesus' ability to be a better Daniel on my behalf. Because what this does for us, instead of living a life trying to be Daniel, right, instead of, instead of that, if I get to live a life where Christ has been Daniel for me, it frees me. Right? It gives us hope. That knowledge that I have the verdict that I'm so desperate for, that someone already secured that verdict, that I'm a someone, that I matter, that verdict that Jesus gets, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault in him. That is spoken of me too, but not just because God loves me, but because he went through my trial for me. Like it's done. The trial is over. I'm out of the courtroom. Can you imagine living life? out of a courtroom, you don't feel the incessant judgment and fear, you're not trying to please, you don't worry about what people think of you, you're not concerned, but you're also not concerned what you think of you, right? Because I know I have this verdict, I know what Christ has done, my standing, my, I am sealed, right? Not by a stone any longer in the pit, but I'm now sealed by a spirit which gives me hope and life, like I know who I am, I know that God is pleased with me. He finds no fault in me. Despite my many faults, despite all my sins, despite how much I am not like Daniel, he looks at me and he sees Daniel. Even better, he sees his son, Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees his son and his daughter in whom he is well pleased and he finds no fault. Whoa. If we let that settle in, if we let that settle into the recesses of our heart, that verdict, that approval, that's a game changer. It's a life changer. I have the ability now, right, to live this quiet, peaceful life. I'm not tossed to and fro. I'm not worried. I'm not constantly boasting and comparing with other people. I'm not desperate, right, for security and approval. I'm not easily agitated by political regime changes. I'm not, right? It doesn't change. I'm not always going back and forth, like, right, this season I got to pray. <laughs> or this, okay, now I'm good. No, right? I can live. I live much more of a life like Daniel does. 
Even though I can't be Daniel, Christ being Daniel for me, right, empowers me to live as Daniel. That's the corollary effect of the gospel, which is why it's such good news. As I put my hope more and more in Christ and that he has done the work for me, I actually start to change my life, and I actually start living more and more like him. Not because I need his approval, not because I need his praise, not out of fear, but out of love. And not out of my love for him, but out of his love for me. I actually start to live more and more, truly like an exile in this world, truly like Daniel, who has his hope set on a God who is faithful and who is just, on a God who judges all and who judges me, but who finds me blameless, who finds me innocent, not because of anything I've done or anything I ever will do, but because of the work of Christ. To live in that reality is to live this life that reflects hope, and peace. It's a life that will make enemies, just like Daniel. It's a life that's filled with trial and suffering, just like Daniel. But it's a life that's filled with such comfort and such hope because it's a life that's filled with Christ. And it's the life that Christ died for us to live. He lived the life I was meant to live, and he died for the life that I actually live. (laughs) But then he rose to give me a picture of the life that's to come, and that I get to walk in every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for you. Lord, we are so undeserving of your love and your mercy. As we think of these characters in the book of Daniel, uh, we do not deserve We do not deserve your love and your forgiveness the way that Daniel and his friends did. Lord, we are far more like the Babylonians than like these kings. Lord, we confess to you how often we turn to other idols and other gods and to ourselves, how often we boast in things that ultimately don't matter. Lord, how desperate we are for approval and for praise from people and things that were never designed to give us that approval and praise. And Lord, we, we turn back to you with just such thanks that you have never wavered in your love for us, that you have never wavered in your verdict that you have given us and the hope and the confidence that we have in you. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us to know how great your love is for us. Lord, strengthen us. Help us in the midst of this life and in the turmoil of life, the trial and the suffering, to just remember who we are in you. To remember the way that you view us and the work that you did for us on our behalf. Help to remind us, Lord, that we're out of the courtroom because you went through it, which empowers us to live but also to worship you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your love and your mercy towards us. In your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we